Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome the director of American Hardcore, Paul Rackman. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. How are things? Well, pretty good. As good as they could be under these current um, circumstances. Um, I guess for legacy's sake, you know, this is happening during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and, uh, yeah, isolation is interesting, but it's funny enough, you stay very busy with, you know, writing and, uh, trying to figure out ways to get new movies going, um, a lot of self-reflection. It's an interesting time. Um, it kind of flips things around a little bit. I'd like to take you way back. Cutting your teeth with the likes of Bad Brains, did you feel like you needed to develop your style at a rapid pace to keep up with the breakneck speed that bands like uh, the Bad Brains were evolving at? Well, when I go back to, uh, without being specific about the Bad Brains, and I'm more than happy to get into that, um, it really was this very nascent, uh, semi-underground uh, hardcore punk rock scene that was starting to appear uh, in America. And these were b- very much on the outskirts of the well-known urban settings that punk rock uh, from the late 70s might have emerged from. So I was a college kid. I'm from New York. I'm a native New Yorker. I was in college in Boston. And in 79, 80, this new music just suddenly emerged at a time when I was really reflecting on, you know, what am I going to be? What am I going to do? I was an international relations major at Boston University, but really that was just a choice I made based on I'd grown up partially French-educated, lived in Europe with my mom after my parents got divorced. So there's a lot of different things happening to me. But I I was still a little vague in who I was and what I wanted to do. So I, I remember spending the summer of 1980 in Berkeley, California, at a time when all this new music really exploded not just there, but all over the country, but San Francisco in particular. You know, the Dead Kennedys were at their peak. There was this new new music every single night from the suburban lawns to the residents to Agent Orange. Like, all this stuff was just exploding. And I, and I remember it starting a little bit on the East Coast with, you know, the bad break. You know, particularly D.C. and Boston was a little earlier than New York on this stuff because New York already had its kind of punk rock thing happening from, uh, you know, the Ramones and, and the whole CBGB thing that had been happening there, you know, as early as the mid-'70s. So for me, um, two things happened. Uh, my roommate became the hardcore punk promoter in Boston. And so he was putting on these shows in tiny spaces like the Gallery East, which was an art gallery uh, that was basically concrete floors and, and 
sturdy walls and, you know, maybe held like 50, 60 people. And he started putting on these shows and bands from all over the country who were going on this circuit were playing. And I saw this music. I heard this music, really, like Gangrene, Mission of Burma, SSD Control. I was at all these bands' first shows. And it just sounded dissonant. It sounded different. It, it really struck my gut um, as something kind of cool and new. And I was somehow emotionally relating to it. So I got really into this. And, and, and a lot of the singing was driven by, let's say, younger people than college kids. These were like, you know, high school kids for the most part. It was a mix. Um, you know, Boston was a good town because it had a lot of young people, you know, particularly the college, uh, all the colleges that, that are there. It had a very, very progressive radio station, WBCN, and this music flourished there. So I was exposed to this sound, this fast, hard, dissonant, um, angry sound, um, with these short sets, you know, Gangrene would take the stage and these are like 40 second songs of anger, of, of, of kind of um, alcoholism and anger. And, and it was just brutal. But I identified with it in some way. Uh, um, at the same time, uh, I was exposed to kind of a new cinema. Uh, right next to my dorm at Boston University, there was an art house cinema called the Nickelodeon, which isn't there anymore. And I remember wandering in on a, I, I started going to midnight films, and uh, I wandered into a film called Eraserhead, David Lynch's Eraserhead, which had, you know was in release in movie theaters in 1979. And I saw this movie, and it was grainy, black and white movie. It was a weird, untraditional story. It had a strange soundtrack, and it fascinated me. I was like, wow, movies can be like this and play in movie theaters, and people are coming to pay them. It was, I was just fascinated by this, this, uh, this display of art. It was as new as this sound that I was exposed to with hardcore punk. So I really felt that I was kind of discovering uh, something new, or at least for myself, something new that was giving me ideas. It was inspiring me. And those two things together inspired me to, um, I enrolled in some film classes. They were more uh, film appreciation classes at Boston University. So every week I was seeing these, great movies with talks and I had to write papers about eight and a half and, you know, Fellini's eight and a half and, you know, wonderful uh, new wave, French new wave films and all this stuff. I was just taking it in. And then the summer of my sophomore year, I went to NYU, summer and junior year of my sophomore year, I went to NYU summer film school. And, you know, by 7980, I was just inspired to buy a Super 8 and 16 millimeter Bolex camera and I started shooting these bands. So my roommate was a promoter. So in particular, I started shooting a lot of gangrene. Uh, uh, Mission of Burma is what was once described as their final show. 
I had uh, I shot on video with a mobile van. I started interning at cable companies. I was just trying to get my hands on as much film video experience as I could because I was determined. Uh, I didn't change my major. I just continued. I just wanted to get out of college. So what happened was I started becoming the guy shooting these bands, but I wasn't editing yet. And um, the way the Bad Brains came into the picture is my, my roommate did a couple of Bad Brain shows. I got to know them. And eventually I got to shoot them a few times. Um, but what really happened was, so I was shooting 80, 81, 82, but I didn't really have access to a lot of editing equipment. I didn't know what to do with the footage yet. You know, this was a long process. This is a very long DIY process. Um, you know, MTV is nascent. It's in the suburbs, really. Um, Boston, downtown, didn't have cable TV. New York City had cable TV, probably one of the first countries in, in, in one of the first cities in, in the country. They had it since the 70s. I grew up with it, but MTV wasn't on the system there. So I started hearing about MTV, and I was just fascinated by this whole music video format. So to, to make a long story short, you know, I was on the inside. I was ha hanging out with these bands. I was very much a part of the scene, but I was the guy with these cameras. And I went on the road with some of these bands, and I just capturing a lot of footage. I moved back to New York after college, and I, I, I'm just determined. And uh, I trained, I had an internship in Boston where I learned to edit on an edit system, but I, I, I didn't have the access to work on my own stuff. I go back to New York, I apply for jobs at video production house, post-production houses. I mean, it's a, it's a long shot, you know, but I'm like, let me just try. And I got hired somewhere as a young editor because I knew the system. It was the same system I'd been trained on in Boston. And they were just looking for some young editor to cut low-budget commercials and music videos. They weren't taking it that seriously yet. And all of a sudden, I was in edit rooms working with music video directors, and these things were appearing on MTV, and I would stay at night and work on my own stuff. And I was able to film transfer all the footage I'd shot in Boston, and I created uh, the Bad Brains Eye Against Eye video. I did uh, the Gangrene Alcohol video, Have Fun. Um, that was another very short Gangrene video, and another Wasted Night. And what happened was I was trying to get these things seen. And so, you know, I, I mailed the, the Eye Against Eye video to SST, uh, and they were playing it on these kind of regional, local, public access shows. And one day I get a call early morning in New York uh, from a guy named Mark Pellington, who's still a very good friend of mine. He's, he's a director. He was working at MTV, and he says, hey, we're starting a new show called 120 Minutes, which is going to be on MTV every Sunday night. And I, we've heard you have gangrene, bad brains, Mission of Burma videos, music videos. And I go, yeah, I do. And he goes, well, we'd like to play them on this new show. This is what this show is about. It, it's about the underground. I roll out of bed. I get some uh, uh, master tapes made at work. 
uh, and I bring them in person to MTV, and I meet Mark Pellington, and I give him the tapes, and lo and behold, almost every Sunday night at midnight, my videos are playing. And it was phenomenal. It was like the bad brains and gangrene are on MTV. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, and this all happened because I was just driven. And that drive came to me because I heard a music that affected me. It affected my sensibilities. It affected my way of thinking. It affected my, my mindset. As did Eraserhead, affected my way of looking at things, seeing things. Those two things really changed the path of my life and career. Um, and, it, and, and it also helped that the whole hardcore movement was a very DIY aesthetic. So it was all about figuring out how to do it yourself. And I applied that to my early career. And that's how... I really got started. And that mindset, as, as much as I progressed to much bigger music videos, bigger productions, bigger budgets, making movies, um, at the center, I still had this mindset of, of this kind of DIY, um, just take charge and go do it, that's at the center of me, which sometimes is very, very helpful in what might be described as, let's say, Hollywood, quote-unquote, or the commercial movie business, um, and sometimes there's an obstacle, and I have to find that balance. But I, I, I'm grateful I have it. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Eraserhead, because that's one of my favorite films of all time. <laughs> but growing up in New York, do you think that that had the most impact on you, or was it your time in Berkeley and Boston that really was informing your tastes? Well, you know, it's a little bit of everything. I mean, New York, before I went to college, you know, yeah, you grow up in New York and, you know, you start hanging out in the street a little bit, but it's not like when I was 15, 16, 17 that I was really, you know, go to CBGB every night or anything like that, where that stuff was happening at that age. Um, I was exposed to it, but it didn't hit me in the gut like it did, you know, when I saw the first hardcore shows. Yeah, I was a music fan, but I was a consumer music fan. I was listening to everything. Yeah, you know, I, I remember hearing, you know, the Sex Pistols album, you know, in 76, and I thought it was really cool, but it didn't make me a punk rocker. You know, I didn't see the Sex Pistols in person uh, back then. Uh, you know, I wasn't in London hanging out with that scene. I, I, I heard the Ramones, and I thought that that was incredibly fun music. I dug it, but I wasn't hanging out at shows with them. When the hardcore thing happened, it was so intimate. It was so small. You re I really felt that that was something I could be part of. Um, so I do think growing up in New York creates a certain mindset, but I didn't, and I was born in New York and I grew up most of my life in New York, but I didn't have a unique New York City uh, youth because I was actually French educated. My mom was European. 
she she was born in Ireland and, and grew up in in France and England part of her life, really out of more desperation of having to get out of of, of Ireland uh, in the latter years after World War II. Um, you know, late forties, early fifties in Ireland were desperate. There was nothing there. And uh, she wanted my brother and I to have a European education, and we went to this French school in New York, which was private but kind of public because it was free to French kids. It was supported by the U.S. Gov- by the French government, but it was actually very affordable, very cheap in a way if an American went there, and there weren't that many there. So I had that experience. And my mom would often return to Europe, and when my parents got divorced, she actually spent a lot of time back in France and Spain. So being a New York City kid, I was exposed to a lot of European culture and schooling. Um, And also my dad was from Brooklyn, but he ended up moving to West Texas after the divorce. So, you know, I'm growing up, and before I get to college... I'm really exposed to a lot of different cultures, ideas, languages. Um, You know, I I, I speak French and Spanish, and it was, um, you know, I don't, I can't draw the line as to how that really affected my artistic or filmmaking formation, but it definitely, it it it. It kept me open to new ideas, I think. I was available. I, was, um, I wasn't really attached to, okay, I got to go to school. I got to get a job. I got to do this. I got to do that. That wasn't part of my, my mindset. I was always, you know, I had this kind of wandering upbringing, and I was always searching. Well, other than Eraserhead and Eight and a Half, what were some of the other formative films or even albums that really drew you to be an artist? Oh, gosh. Um, let me give you, you know, well, the Ramones albums, the Sex Pistols, the Clash, um, even, I mean, you know, I was listening to stuff like Santana. I was always listening to stuff that was musically driven. Um, in terms of films, um, oh my God! It, it, that's always such a hard question. But Sunset Boulevard, um, you know Orson Welles movies, uh, all the French Truffaut and Godard. I mean, these sound are these are kind of like the filmmaker one hundred and one <laughs> type of things. But this is what was influential to me. Anything that was different from what you might see on television and what you might see in the main movie theaters was what I was uh, attracted to. It was about finding new sensibility. And the thing about uh, these films, um, I mean, even even James Dean and Giant, you know, you, you watch that movie, which is, you know, almost three hours long. The storytelling is different. It's personal. Um... So anything that was deeply personal that would present the psychology of a character really, really um, attracted me. Um, There was something immersive about it. 
it wasn't so plot-driven as it was uh, character-driven, psychologically driven. You know, why are they so evil? Or, you know, what is driving this character? You know, all of a sudden you become part of the movie. Those are the films that really drew me and affected, affected me. And, you know, I tried to always find something like that in my work. And sometimes I was successful, sometimes I, you're not, because it's, it's hard. When you started moving away from the hardcore scene into more mainstream and visionary bands, music videos like Alice in Chains, Temple of the Dog, The Replacements, Roger Waters, Joan Jett, Kiss, the countless others, how much creative mm-hmm. input were you given when working with these like bigger artists? The transition I had, so basically when I was working with the hardcore bands, they were, the hardcore bands were not, um, they weren't cinema educated or they, they didn't know how to make music videos or, or, or shoot film. You know, they were, you know, kids in a band and they went on tour, they made records. So they, I had their trust. I just did kind of what I wanted. And while I was delivering something for their music, I was also, you know, freely exploring my own abilities. So that kind of gave me a certain amount of confidence. It wasn't like I was getting hired, but, you know, I, I, I offered the Bad Brains to make a video for them, and then I gave it to them. You know, I didn't sell it to them. I didn't get paid to do it. <laughs> you know, it was as much for me as it was for them. Um, it was all about being part of it and creating something. The um, the exposure I got on 120 Minutes and MTV allowed me to get represent represented by a couple of companies uh, that got into the business of making music videos because MTV was exploding. You know, all the eye, all the youthful eyeballs in the world were on MTV at the, in those years. Um, the uh, So that transition was, it was exciting. It's where I wanted to go. I was determined to become a music video director and I was myopic and focused on that. And my, my job as an editor was a conduit to that. I got to meet a lot of people in the music video business, namely the record company people. I was working with music established music video directors and edit rooms delivering videos to their clients who were the artists and the record companies. So I was I had a track in, but still I had to be I had to prove myself as a director and and um and, and be worthy of their recognition to actually give me money to make something for them on a commercial level. So the MTV exposure kind of gave me that, that stepping stone. But the transition into that world was, it was easy and difficult. Um, so I spent a year at a smaller company called Henry Lacey and Associates. And a year later, I jumped and went to Propaganda Films, um, which was a company started by David Fincher and Steve Golan and eight other directors. And there was about 12 or 15 directors there when I went. By the time I left, like seven, eight years later, there were 65 directors. 
it had just bloomed. So at the beginning, um, I made some I, I made some anthrax video. I made a video for anthrax. I made a video for accept the German band. I made a video for uh, MOD methods of destruction, which was kind of a New York, New Jersey hardcore band. I made uh, a suicidal tendencies video. All those videos um, were, I, I was very much driven by my own instincts. I came up with the ideas um, on all of them and how the story part of the film would be. They all had a narrative element in them, intercut with performance. And that was all driven by me. Um, as I got more successful and as the music video, uh, business grew, uh, bands and, uh, record companies became a little more, uh, experienced in film production and, uh, the marketing departments got much more involved. The early days of music videos, um, and when I say early days, I'm going to just say up to 1992, let's say, was very, very director-driven. It was reliant upon, oh, let's find a director to come up with an idea for a music video, and we'll pick the one we like, and we'll go with it. It was very driven that way. Sometimes you would get some outside suggestions um but it was really driven by listening to the song and coming up with an idea and that was the bidding process the bidding process to 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 get the music video in those days was probably 75 percent concept that you're presenting 25 percent negotiating the budget the business side so when the business was like that, and I would say, you know, that era of my music video career, you know, starts with hardcore when it's just pure DIY and probably ends around the time I do uh, Temple of the Dog and the Pantera videos. Everything that happens after, well, definitely after 94 or 93 on is a completely different business. Uh, by 1992-93, making music videos is more like making commercials. You know, the record company has ideas, the band has ideas, they want it to be this, they want it to be that, there's a marketing strategy, and all of a sudden, uh, you can see that a lot of the success, a lot of the music videos start looking alike. You know, everybody is doing what the last person did because it worked. Um, there's a lot of directors who basically make the same video over and over again. Um, and I wasn't as successful in that environment. So, you know, as I went through the first part of my music video career and, you know, for example, Alice in Chains, Man in the Box that you mentioned before, I listened, I saw that band play, uh, in New York around Halloween. Um, when their first record had just come out, uh, they had a video for We Die Young, their first video that didn't really do anything. And I just called the record company. I just saw this band. They're on your label. It was Columbia Records. I really love this band. I want to work with them. And that passion, my direct call, I didn't even ask my agent to call. I called the agent, my, my agent representative, uh, 
Democratic propaganda after I made the call. <laughs> I told them, I just called Columbia. I want to do this video. So anyway, they considered me. And I remember I didn't talk to the band. I was listening to the song, Man in the Box. And I, I felt it. I, I, I once again felt the music in my gut, just the same way I felt gangrene, SSD control, and the bad brains in my gut. The music was was driven, and it kind of made sense because the grunge era kind of connects to hardcore. Um, all the grunge bands, all the people who were in grunge bands were hardcore fans when they were kids. You know, Soundgarden, their first record, you know, Chris Cornell really wanted his first record to be on SST because it was the hardcore label. So uh, it made sense in a way, when I look back, that I was connecting to that music. So I think for the Man in the Box video, uh, I, I really took the lyrics into account and I paired the imagery up with that. I had a fax exchange with Lane Staley. Uh, they were on the road. I couldn't even get him on the phone. But um, he sent me a fax with like four words on it and they were just images pulled from the lyrics that, and they were images I was already thinking about. And it's, they said a rainy drippy barn, um, and a baby with eyes sewn shut. I think those were the words he put in the facts. It was really that simple. And so I started thinking of it and I came up with the idea of the farm, of the farm animals, of, uh, the prosthetic of the kind of Grim Reaper character who's walking around at the end. And th that video just came together in my head as something uh, that I wanted to do. I felt very personal about it. I remember on my way to the shoot that morning, I was terrified because I'd come up with this idea. I'm taking a cool rock man and I'm putting them in in a barn with cows, pigs, and chickens. You know, I'm like, what the hell am I doing? This is going to fail. <laughs> you know, <laughs> nobody, there hadn't been anything like that. You turn on MTV and you don't see cows and pigs with a band playing near them. It just, just hadn't happened. So I was terrified. And, um, but once the camera started rolling, I just went with it. And um, I remember shooting Lane's close-up of, of him singing the song, and I immediately knew that, oh, this is... I, I, I immediately saw the connective tissue in that performance. It's magnetic. It's, it's, it's hypnotic. And I saw that while we were shooting, and I knew I had an anchor there. Okay, okay, this video is going to be good because Lane is delivering here. You know, we delivered that video, and it became kind of a hit on MTV. It broke the band. And it uh, every time that happens, you move up a little bit as a director. So all of a sudden, bigger bands are coming and asking me to do their videos. But they're not all kind of cool, punkish, grunge bands. <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, you know, I have to uh, think outside of that box. And sometimes it was really successful, sometimes not. I was very good at delivering, I'm very good at delivering work that I can feel. I'm not very good at delivering work that I have to objectively um, execute.
So if I would get a call from, oh, this uh, R&B artist uh, would love to work with you or we can see we want to do something different with this artist, you know, so we want to take a rock guy and have him do R&B. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, yeah, he kind of wants like, you know, nice women around, nice cars. And all of a sudden I'm being fed all these objectified ideas on how to manufacture a star or a product. And I was not good at that. Other directors, like one of my peers at Propaganda, you know, David Fincher is in a class by himself. Uh, but, you know, Michael Bay was really good at executing that. You know, Michael Bay could go, oh, yeah, let's get some hot chicks some hot cars. Let's make it look slick. Uh, well, you know, he can execute that. He's really, really good at that. And he's very, very successful. And But I was not good at that. If I didn't believe in it, it sucked. <laughs> so I had to find for something deeper. And um, it was harder. It was harder for me. You know, it was kind of a hit of this world. Um, Joan Jett worked because, you know, I put her on a New York roof and I had uh, Paul Westerberg there and the song vibe and I, I, I connected to the music. But if I couldn't connect to anything, I couldn't execute uh, outside of myself. Um, I, I just don't have that. That's not one of my strengths. And I think a lot of it has to do with my, you know, me coming in as, an, as a visual artist going off of the music like hardcore that I really felt inside my gut and my heart and being exposed to European and uh, master cinema that was very personal. So... Uh, I never let that go. And I remember people in the music business telling me, don't make it so difficult for yourself. Just just, just shoot some cool shit. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know how to do that. So that's a little bit my past. I mean, Temple of the Dog, you know, the Soundgarden and Pearl Jam guys together, before Pearl Jam broke, you know, that video had its own... Uh, thing uh you know it was a, a song about a loved one who died um their friend their bandmate the Soundgarden guys wanted to make something very arty not even be in the film in the video the Pearl Jam guys wanted to be in the video they wanted exposure you know this was uh you know mother love bone fell apart because Andrew died and they had a new shot here with a new band uh, and that wasn't called Pearl Jam yet when I shot this video. Um, they were called Mookie Blaylock. And uh, I had to go up to Seattle for like a week before the shoot and just kind of meet with them and try to figure out how do we make a video with half the people who don't want to be in it and want this type of, want a more narrative film. And then we have these guys who really want to be featured in the film. And... Uh, we were hanging out, and, and Chris Cornell really drove, was really in the driver's seat there because we were going to end up doing what he agreed to in the end. And uh, I had to come up and just present ideas to bring them together. And, I, I, you know, while I was up there, I was really taken by the city, the landscapes, the atmosphere. And I think the Seattle atmosphere 
has a lot to do with the Seattle sound, particularly of grunge. You know, it's foggy, it's cold, um, it's, it's the, the great northwest. Um, and I just suggested, let's, let's just keep it um, organic. Let's find some great Seattle spots that mean something to you guys and maybe meant something to Andrew. And that's when uh, Chris Cornell took me to this little park called Discovery Park that they used to go to, apparently. And, uh, you know, I found these very distinct locations there, and everybody was on board with that. And um, I was just able to create a vibe for that uh, out in the wilderness that worked. And it was the very first time Eddie Vedder was ever filmed uh, singing anything. So, again, I I had to feel it. Uh, So that's kind of what... Uh, my uh, my entry into filmmaking and what there's a certain personal connection that was very necessary for me to 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 make my stuff. Well, moving into features like Four Dogs playing poker, did you find that you were trying to prove that you could make a feature on your own, or did you find yourself calling in a lot of favors? Well, Four Dollars Playing Poker is a very interesting story. So I had a, I'd made a short film uh, right before that called Drive Baby Drive. And that's a short film that had gone to like 80 film festivals around the world. It won four or five uh, awards on the festival circuit. And it did really well. It's a 35 millimeter black and white uh, kind of 15, 20 minute intense narrative film uh that had gotten me you know festival you know so basically i made that in 1994 uh the year we started the slam dance film festival i I co-founded the slam dance film festival and that film uh did really well and i i the end of my music video career the last music video i ever directed was in 1997 by the way um, I just turned my back on it. I wanted to make films. And the transition happened because I made four short films with this guy who was a NPR radio storyteller by the name of Joe Frank, who told these very surreal stories on the radio. And CBS Television wanted to possibly adapt his stories into a very late-night series, kind of like the Twilight Zone. So I got to do these four narratives. Of course, they were way too weird for CBS, so that never happened. Um, I'm actually working with, with his material again now, and we might be able to take this up again. But at the time, it just didn't work. So I made these four shorts that did play on cable television, but um, they didn't. it didn't really fly with CBS. But, but I'd gotten bitten. I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to make narrative films. And I became less and less interested with music video. Um, For me, music video had become this business. It was like commercials. And I wasn't good at commercials either. Um, I really needed to feel what I was doing. I, I was stubborn. and But that's how, that's how my artistic mechanism worked best. Um, I had a choice of either choosing things that I really believed in and felt and they would be successful or executing something that I didn't feel feel, and it would just come out 
as like the shittiest thing ever. <laughs> so I had to be careful. Um, so it was a, it was an artistic struggle. So anyway, uh, after Four Dogs Playing Poker, I was trying to get a feature film version of it done, and it, it was just hard. It was going to take a long time. Um, I was still kind of finding my way around writing screenplays. You know, it's it's so true to just throw away your first two screenplays. You know, they're not going to be the ones. <laughs> um, so uh, Four Dogs Playing poke, Poker came around actually through an agent I had. I had an agent at CAA. And this film came around that uh, they're looking for a director for, and it's completely financed. It was like Wall Street money. These people want, this is, this is uh, 1999 now. So Wall Street money, or 2000, um, Wall Street money's coming in. They want to make movies. And I read the script, and I didn't like the script. I'm like, oh, I, I, I don't know if I can do it. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really feeling it. They come back to me four, five, six times. And, and it's going to the very top of CAA. And one of the executive producers is like the son of a really powerful executive at Fox. So all of a sudden, there's this kind of... Hollywood royalty around this thing. And I was struggling to get this other film made. And I wasn't, I really turned my back at this point on music video. I, I was turning down so many music videos that they had forgotten about me. I wasn't really a player in the music video game. And by 1997, 98, 99, music video is now driven by R&B and rap on MTV. It's not rock anymore. And I'm a rock guy. So um, I, uh, in the end, I say yes to Four Dogs Playing Poker based on script revisions. Um, and of course, it was a bumpy road. Uh, a lot of promises were made in terms of rewriting the script with really great writers. That didn't happen. There were some producer skirmishes at the beginning of the movie where half the producers got fired, it got sh the movie got shut down before it could start, and then they got it up again. But eventually I made the movie. I ended up with a really great cast. But I ended up with a good script, but I always felt the script needed something else. There was something that needed fixing. And the producers didn't. And it wasn't something I could fix, because it wasn't my script. And the producer said, no, 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 let's go, let's go. So I made the movie, and uh, the movie, you know, I had Forrest Whitaker, Olivia Williams, Balthazar Getty, Daniel London, a great young actor uh, at the time. Um, and it, I had a great cast, and I had a great crew. You know, it's like a $2 million movie that looks like a $15 million movie. Um, and... The film doesn't get a theatrical distribution deal. Uh, the film gets bought by Showtime and Warner Home Video. In today's landscape, that's like a home run. But in, in 2000, it's not. It's like direct-to-video, direct-to-TV. So the movie gets seen a lot. It goes to a few festivals, but it's not this kind of indie hit or it's not even... Forget indie hit, it's not even part of that landscape that people thought I would bring the film into. Um, it, it's, a, it's a film noir genre picture about four friends who double-cross each other. It has a complicated script. 
And while the movie, I would say, is good, it should have been way, way better story-wise. So anyhow, um, so I get paid to do a movie in Hollywood. And all of a sudden, all the scripts I'm getting are the same thing. That's what I've become in the eyes of the business. I'm getting all these kind of, you know, genre, dark, L.A. film noir, um, and then scripts with like the number three and four after them, uh, <laughs> like Blade Four and stuff. And I'm like, oh man, this isn't who I want to be. And I just say no to everything. Probably a mistake career-wise, but I'm just like, this is my nightmare. It really hampers me. Um, and I, I kind of get artistically stuck. Well, I get stuck as a filmmaker between the art of filmmaking and the business of Hollywood. And, uh, you know, Hollywood isn't too kind to, to those types of entities. You know, you either play their game and you're on or you get forgotten or you get pushed aside. So anyhow, um, you know, Four Dogs Playing Poker doesn't bring me to where I want to be. And I struggle with that. Uh, but the saving grace to all that, I have a really great uh, filmmaker community. You know, I co-founded the Slamdance Film Festival. I have this community of young filmmakers that I'm part of. It's almost like a collaborative, and we're helping each other and other filmmakers. So I, I can stay mentally healthy in that environment. And that's about when I start to... So I make a few other short films. Uh, there are a lot of them on my website. I make a short film called Home around just after 9-11. I make um, a couple other things. And I start work on American hardcore. And I go, oh, documentary has become kind of a DIY genre. The digital equipment that's coming up is good enough now to make a movie on your own. So I, I get all that equipment. And I start the interviews for American Hardcore. And it's a four-year journey of making that film that I bring to the Sundance Film Festival when it's done. And I sell it to Sony Picture Classics. And where I wanted to be with four dogs playing poker, American Hardcore brings me there. Because I got it. I understood it. I was connected to it. It connects back to my, the very, very first things I ever shot. And, and I, I get to where I want to be through the struggle of making that film. How am I supporting myself during that time? I go back, I move back to New York from Hollywood first thing. And I start editing commercials for all my peers who became big commercial directors, <laughs> you know? So I'm like, you know, I have this crap as an editor. I'm making American hardcore. Nobody's giving me money to make the movie. I'm making it myself. So I... I trying to get myself out of debt, I, I um, support myself, and I invest into American Hardcore between uh, 2001 and 2005. Do you find documentaries easier to make because you have to do less development and can really just go out there and let the story find itself? Yes and no. I think yes, because it's it's it can be easy to start a documentary. You know, you can get started on a documentary 
you can find if you find a compelling story with compelling subjects that has either the narrative that you could film as a very in a verite process or has abundant archival materials that nobody's ever seen that's striking archival materials that can tell the story yes um finishing a documentary at the level of say you know getting getting it to a big festival and with a big distributor is hard it's just as hard as any other film um you know making making movies is hard you know the movies that i think are really successful they're successful because they they ignite something personal they ignite a personal connection between the viewer and the movie and if a film can pull you into its story on an emotional level it's a hit movie it's going to go somewhere i mean it might not be a mega box office hit but it's going to be something that people will want to distribute distribute because it can attract an audience that's not that easy i i have films that are stuck uh on one way or another uh i have a documentary that's stuck i have um I, I'm I'm in the process of casting a new narrative film right now called Claudine 19. I have uh, Abigail Breslin and Gabriel Matarazzo from uh, Abigail Breslin was Little Miss Sunshine uh, and Gabriel Matarazzo who's in Stranger Things and this is a story about my childhood in New York City and that movie you know I wrote the script like three years ago and it's only at the it's it's kind of at the end of its development phase now we're finally going out to financing so it's hard it's a long road to get something you believe in made um i'm starting a new documentary uh, uh about a uh time and place in new york city uh that it's not announced yet so i can't really talk too much about it but it's right up my alley and uh that already has development financing and i'm getting paid on that um but these are all hard roads and you got to make smart choices i think in this era of abundance it's a very different world from the 80s 90s early 2000s to now um filmmaking was always hard but you have you know a hundred times more films being made now than back then so there's an era of abundance right now which makes the market more crowded and makes the quest for the top better films even more selective so while this idea of abundance and all these streamers and self-distribution might seem like it's a easier way that creates more opportunity i actually think it's harder because you have to make uh, you have to make films the, the bar is higher i think to really 
find an audience now. But going back to American Hardcore and looking at it in a retrospective light, do you think having a figure like Reagan in the White House influenced the progression of punk music? And why are we not seeing an influx of this rebellious spirit in the art currently now that we are living under maybe what is considered the most divisive of presidents? That's a very good question. And uh, that's a question I've asked myself, I've been asked before. Um, so the hardcore movement, uh, you know, the beginning of the American hardcore move, movie, you know, we have, you know, Reagan getting inaugurated. Hardcore punk rock movement was not that, it was not as politically astute as you might think. There were some bands like the Dead Kennedys, Millions of Dead Cops, MDC. Um, you know, there were bands like them who were politically driven and politically eloquent in their music and lyrics. But for the most part, uh, it was the politics of anger, dissatisfaction, uh, teenage rebelliousness. You know, it wasn't a sophisticated political movement. I think Reagan being the poster child of the new America back then, the new Republicans, uh, it was very easy imagery to make fun of. It was very easy imagery to target as... These are old people trying to turn the clock backwards. Hardcore is young people trying to do something new and different. That was at the foundation, I think, at that. So who better to use on a punk rock flyer than some kind of um, desecration of Ronald Reagan and his image? That became... uh, a way that became a device that became the cartoon to use for hardcore. Um, it wasn't a very sophisticated political uh, movement in the sense that it had political directives. Yeah, there was, you know, Rock Against Reagan in Washington, D.C. There were these events, you know, that Jello Biafra kind of was at the head of that, which were these big concerts on the uh, on the mall in Washington. I think that was in 1985. Um, but still, it didn't really amount to much. You know, the, 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 the Republican Party just looked at that as kind of a scene of minions that didn't mean much, and they were right. I think the punk movement that happened in Britain under Thatcher in 75, 76, was far more politically motivated because those kids went into the streets and rioted and threw Molotov cocktails in the streets and blew shit up and fought the police. That was a much more driven political movement than the hardcore movement. The hardcore movement was, for the most part, safe in the suburbs. Um, it wasn't the same thing. So I think that 
there's a fallacy in believing that 80s hardcore was a threat to the status quo. It was not. Um, it was basically fun to be against Reagan, and it worked for the movement at large. But hardcore punk was about throwing shows where you could a gathering of people with a similar mindset and kind of, you know, fucking shit up musically. It wasn't really to change things on a society, on, on the level of changing society. That, that wasn't its goal. Were there any artists that didn't make it into American hardcore that you were really trying for? Oh, yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's two two obvious ones that I still get emails about, um, the Dead Kennedys and the Misfits. So we really wanted to have those bands in the film. And I was, so Glenn Danzig just never got back to us. You know, I don't, I don't know if he was blowing us off or, you know, and this was at a time when he, you know, he, it's not like the Misfits were, he wasn't doing Danzig anymore. Mm-hmm. per se. He was, but it wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't on a big label anymore or anything like that. And, you know, the must, the misfits were, they hated each other. So, you know, Glenn and, and Jerry only were, were not talking back then when we were making this film. So it was really difficult to bring them together. You know, there was a little bit of, well, you know, do we do we interview Jerry only? Then Glenn definitely won't do it. Do we interview Glenn? Uh, well, he's not getting back to us. Uh, how are we going to license the music? It just became difficult. But we we were still trying. The same thing was true with the Kennedys. You know, the Kennedys, you know, another great band, you know, as great as the Bad Brains. Um, they are broken up at odds. You know, Jello is the outcast. The other guys take the music, take the band, put a new singer in, and tour. So we were in touch. I was in touch with Jello, and he had a lot of problems. He had some problems with some supposed uh, errors in the book that was published previously that kind of served a little bit as a roadmap to the film. And then he also, uh, he was just very suspicious. You know, he, and I, I, I communicated with him back and forth. Well, yeah, maybe I'll talk to you. Um, I don't know. Let me think about it. I was just dragging on. And then the other guys were controlling the music. So again, oh, do we interview Jello and then not interview the other guy? Because Jello kind of wanted to tell his side of the story and maybe we won't get the music. So it was a pain in the ass. So what happened was, in 2005, I decide that I have a good cut of the film, and I submit it to Sundance. In November of 2005, we get accepted to Sundance, and I'm like, we just got to finish the film. Hell with it. So we try to do a few more interviews, and we're locking picture. And the Dead Kennedys and, and the Misfits, the, the story is just dragging on. And I was like, fuck it. We're going to make the movie. We have enough to tell the story. They're mentioned in the movie. People talk about them. We talk about their place in the movie. They're just not in it. 
Um, so I wish we had it. It would have been a little more complete in terms of the bookmarks for the film. The, the, the film is very much the experience of, you know, my days in the hardcore scene. You know, it's 79 to 86. It's really 79 to 84, but, but you know, you go up to 86, and which really is that first generation of hardcore bands. You know, the ones who started it all. Anything that happened after that is just another fold. You know, uh, we end a little bit with the Cro-Mags, you know, and the Cro-Mags, as Harley himself, Harley Flanagan himself puts it, is they are very much a second-generation hardcore band. So that's really, those are... Misfits and Dead Kennedys are really the two missing bands to the story we told. Um, we did have we did have trips planned to the Midwest to get Negative Approach, the guys from Negative Approach, and we did have a trip planned to Texas to get the guys from the Big Boys in there. But once we got in the Sundance, we had to wrap it up. It's like you can't tell Sundance, oh, we're not finished yet. Maybe we can come next year. You don't know what's going to happen. You have to seize that opportunity, and it was there. And, uh, again, finishing a film back then uh, took longer than it does now. You know, um, there were, you know, we had shot that all on tape. We had to do an online. We had, you know, there was a lot more physical work to get a film Picture locked, mixed, color corrected, cleared, all that stuff. Um, and you only have two months. You, you know, Sundance tells you you're in around Thanksgiving, and it's on the screen the second week of January back then. So it's a, it's a very, very quick turnaround to lock a film. It's been said a few times that a lot of the hardcore bands of that time have kind of self-sabotaged their own legacy. Looking back at your film, do you feel proud that no matter what happens with their own like their own self-legacies, there's this one document that will stand above to show how truly special it was no matter what? Well, I do feel that we tell... I do feel we've told as true a story as possible. In, in that, um, I think part of it is that the journey was somewhat personal. You know, I was there for a lot of that. Uh, almost all those bands were friends of mine. Um, when you say destroyed their legacies, what's interesting is a lot of those bands, I think what happened with hardcore is by 1984, um, if you remember... By 1984, a new genre is really... The speed metal, thrash metal thing is, is starting to rise. So Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, all those bands are kind of starting. And it's not hardcore. It's bigger. They're more like metal. So it's speed metal. And they want big stage, big performance. Uh, you know, they want to be big rock bands. And there's a little bit of a of a signing frenzy with record companies that happens in the second half of the 80s with, uh, you know, driven by the likes of 
um, glam metal, you know, like Motley Crue and um, all those bands. There's this signing frenzy of uh, kind of cheesy heavy metal rock. But there's money there. So I think a lot of the hardcore bands were like, oh, my God, how do we get signed to a record deal now? You know, nobody wants to sign. Again, I, I really think that first generation of hardcore really dies out in 84. Um, between 84 and 86, a lot of these bands kind of changed their sound a little bit. A little bit. You know, look at, look at TSOL, look at even Gangrene and Circle Jerks. They become more metal. So they're trying to, you know, they're, they're growing their hair. They're becoming more metal. Um, the, the, the record sound is changing, but it doesn't really work. You know, the, the, the record companies are really going for this new metal sound. They're not really going for hardcore bands who are becoming metal. It doesn't <laughs> click the way they thought it would. And I think that damages their legacies a little bit. But what happens in 2006, and I think the film might have helped us, the, film, the, the fact that the film got distributed by Sony, Sony Picture Classics was really a blessing. Because Sony Picture Classics, their machine is about big promotion. So all of a sudden, you know, we're getting stories in the New York Times. Uh, you know, massive publicity in newspapers like you don't see anymore. Uh, theatrical release of like a thousand screens. Um, you know, all of a sudden the impact is bigger. And it pushes these bands to kind of get together again and go out on tour. And when they go out on tour, what do they play? They're playing the old stuff. They're not playing the stuff from 85 and 86. <laughs> They're going back to their roots. And... Um, I think that worked for them. Did they destroy their legacies? Yeah, but who doesn't? Uh, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of artists, bands, musicians, filmmakers, authors, you know, they play around with their with their art, their ideas, and some some things are hit, some things hit, some things miss. You know, failure is a really, really important part of being an artist failure is an incredibly important part of being a filmmaker um you learn way way more from your mistakes than you do from your successes so i think failure brings growth so you know i i think in the long run it doesn't uh really affect them in the end you you, you usually remember the good stuff and forget the bad stuff if anything, the bad stuff, you'll laugh at it. You won't take it as seriously. Well, Slam Dance was started as a collective, but what was your original inspiration behind that? Well, the inspiration, there was no single inspiration for Slam Dance. So Slam Dance really was born out of rejection from Sundance. Yep. Uh, Slam Dance was put together by a dozen filmmakers in the, the fall, late fall of 1994. And we had all gotten rejected from Slamdance. Uh, two people, uh, Shane Kuhn, uh, John Fitzgerald, and Dan Mervish uh, were the three people who really 
uh, started it. I came in kind of fourth, and we just put together this idea of going to Park City with our own films. I had that film I mentioned before, Dry Baby Drive. Those other three guys were all uh, graduate film students with their thesis films. They had all met at uh, an event in New York called the IFFM, which is now called the IFB Market. Um, uh, it was called the uh, Independent Film Filmmaker Forum and Market, and that's that was a place where Sundance would go see new, find new films to bring to Sundance. But by ninety four ninety five, Sundance was already changing. Um, Hollywood was kind of co opting. Sundance. In 1994, 95 was the year that Walt Disney Company buys Miramax. It was the year that Warner Brothers starts, um, buys New Line and they start a, a division called Fine Line for kind of indie, indie films. Uh, Sony has Sony Picture Classics. All of a sudden, Hollywood sees that there's a business to be had in American independent film. Um, and this was awakened by things like Steven Soderbergh's uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, the success that that film had. And that drove to, to, to similar success thereafter with some other films like that. So all of a sudden, big money, big movie stars, big directors, big producers are all trying to get into the game of, a, of what a Sundance movie is. And that was leaving out the pure indies that was what, the Sundance Film Festival was really founded on. So we found ourselves with films that, you know, I mean, I was told by John Cooper at the time, who was pro programming short films, that, oh, yeah, we're, you know, Drive Baby Drive has a great shot. We're going to take it. You know, we'll more than likely program it, you know, and sure enough that he didn't, it got left out. Um, so I was pissed. And, um, and so were these other guys. So it was very much, the first year was very much this kind of ragtag collective of filmmakers. We all pitched in a few hundred bucks. We got to Park City, and we just set up projectors in hotel ballrooms and stuff um, and just showed our films. What happened was we did have, you know, some of our screenings were packed, and they were free, but what really happened with that was uh, Dan Mervis, who's still involved with the festival as I am. There's three of us from the first year still involved with Slamdance. Um, Dan Mervis was very, very good at um, press releases. He had worked as an intern in DC after college for some US senator and worked in, with the speechwriters. So he was really good at writing up press releases and things. And so all our press releases got totally accepted by the Hollywood press. We were a story. Um, so Hollywood Reporter, Variety, even the LA Times calendar section all took notice. And they kept writing about us because we were this new thing happening at Sundance. And we were fun to write about and Sundance hated us. So every time Sundance criticized us, they called us parasites, losers, trying to take the, steal the spotlight, uh, rejects. 
the next day, the Hollywood press would print that. <laughs> All of a sudden, we became the anti-hero. We became the, um, you know, we became the the little festival that could. We became the um, outsider fighting to be an insider. And we became the entity to cheer on. And I think that helped us a lot. And again, my... My DIY hardcore ethics really fit in with what Slamdance was. It was a DIY expert effort, set up projectors in some room. I mean, we had an office room, hotel rooms, and then like a hotel conference room. And we had projectors that kept breaking. It was completely DIY. And my experience in the hardcore community and that ethos of printing flyers and sticking flyers everywhere, handing out flyers up in Park City, all of that fitted perfectly. And it worked. It clicked. Oh, did you expect it to become this place of discovery for some of the biggest filmmakers working today, like Christopher Nola or mm. Lena Dunham? Or was the primary goal really just to find the best films you could and present what interested you? Well, we never thought we were going to continue doing it. Some of us didn't think that. We thought at first this was going to be a one-off thing. So the other person still involved from the first year is Peter Baxter, who was a producer on a film the very first year uh, that was called Loser. And Peter really was the driving force of like, I think we should come back next year and do this again. And we can just find other people's films. And him and John Fitzgerald really kind of set that up. Dan and I and Shane were still involved, but we were busy trying to get more films made. They really kind of set up an office in L.A. and set up what, what, what would become the structure for the Slamdance Film Festival, a submission process, a programming process, um, which is all very unique. And uh, Dan and I have been programming since the beginning. Um and we just it, we continued, and it was hard. Um, it was a lot of hard work, but we continued doing this for other filmmakers. We were filling a vacuum, a void. Clearly, Sundance was becoming more commercial, and the very small, first-time, tiny, self-financed films were being left out. So did we know what it was going to become? No. We can't predict that. Slamdance is really known for, you know, a lot of great filmmakers' very first films. But those very first films were not commercially viable, necessarily. Those filmmakers became more famous on their second and third films. But their very first films were all at Slamdance. So we, we created a programming ethic, I guess, of recognizing, of being able to recognize a certain type of talent that has a voice. You know, we can recognize an early voice. We can recognize an early style. We can recognize, I think, in our programming, uh, the ability to see, oh, this is a pretty good film, and I look forward to seeing what this filmmaker does next. 
those are the first type, the first films we try to find, and we're good at it. Um, so there's no way to predict what's going to happen to anybody's career because there's so many factors that get in the way. But we're grateful that we were able to be recognized as a place that, you know, finally the first American festival to program the following. Um, Chris Nolan submitted the following to Slamdance twice. He submitted it in 92 and 93, and it got in in 94. <laughs> uh, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. It, he submitted it in 96 and 97, and it got in in 98. So um, it, it wasn't like the shoe-in. Um, you know, the Russo brothers came with a film um, called Wigs. That film never seen the light of day. Nobody's ever seen that film. Um, it's, I mean, I'm sorry, it's called Pieces, uh, which is another name for a wig. Um, uh, it's, it's a name for, Pieces is a name that's used for male wigs, um, a piece. Um, their film was never seen, but they got to meet Steven Soderbergh, who kind of was the only film that he saw at the festival. He liked them, and he ended up helping them. Um, in their careers, and that was a very long road between their appearance at Slamdance and anything commercial. You know, it took them four or five years to, to break out with anything. You know, so, uh, you, you know, Lena Dunham's first short was there. Lynn Shelton's first film was at Slamdance. And uh, by the time she made Hump Day, that got into Sundance. And it was at the right time, the right place. A talented singular vision from a female filmmaker and that's kind of where the industry was heading towards so all these things are are um, haphazard uh, we're just slam dance programs the same way we always have and we're grateful that I'm very grateful to have been part of something that I think Slamdance is the punk rock festival in a way. It is the hardcore, it carries a little bit of the hardcore ethos. Slamdance is very, very much run like a very small independent record label. You know, it's like the SST, Exclaim, um, uh, stiff records of film festivals. <laughs> Well, do you think that the festival scene is going to have a bigger impact on cinema as we see more and more theaters closing down? I don't know. I do think that for uh, new filmmakers, film students, for people seeking an entry into a career as a filmmaker, uh, film festivals are very, very important. For some small films, first films, the theater, the film festival circuit is the theatrical distribution. You know, uh, it, it, many films that don't get bought by a theatrical distributor are going to end up self-distributing and more than likely just going digital. Um so in a way, for a lot of these first films, uh, the film festival is the theatrical distribution. We'll see where film festivals go. I think it's it's getting more and more crowded. 
there's more film festivals and there's more films and more filmmakers and more people who want to become more filmmakers. But the conglomeration of the uh, streamers, meaning so much being done by, uh, you know, Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, Apple, HBO Max, Disney, all these entities kind of filling the internet with content is making it an extremely crowded, crowded area. Um, Now, I find that with abundance, things get harder. They don't get easier. It's so easy to think that, oh my God, there's all this opportunity for content. But that opportunity becomes more restricted. Uh, 80% of it is very commercial, uh, driven by studio type of uh, development processes. Um, And a lot of it is, you know, developed scripted content and they're just going out there and hiring directors to do what they want. Um, The space for independent filmmakers, writer directors is narrower. It's more competitive. It's harder. Uh, the risks are greater, particularly if they're equity financed. Or you end up doing, you know, that's why so many filmmakers like Noah Baumbach uh, and uh, even Marty Scorsese, they're doing Netflix movies that are getting very small theatrical windows um, because that's where the money is. So it's a changing landscape. It's a very competitive landscape because when you have, it's kind of back to a studio system because when you have these six or seven streaming entities that call the shots, they're all in competition for the biggest names. You know, how does Netflix draw attention to itself? Well, by having Marty Scorsese and Robert De Niro. Um, For music docs, if you look at the music documentary landscape now, I don't think if American Hardcore was made today, it would get the kind of theatrical release it got in 2006. Um, Because right now, the music documentary landscape is completely driven by celebrity. You know, uh, big celebrities are making their own music docs, and that's what people want to finance, and that's what people want to see on the big scale, you know, uh, you know, Bruce Springsteen, um, Taylor Swift, uh, Rolling Stones, um, all of that, um, Johnny Cash, it's all big name music docs. Niche music docs really don't have a chance in that market because, you know, what does, what does Netflix and Amazon want to do? They want to make a poster or they want to make a digital image with the face of Bruce Springsteen. That's going to sell. That's going to attract subscribers. So I think that for the pure independent filmmaker, it's, it's just as hard, if not harder than ever. But, you know, great art, great films are made by through persistence. There's a lot of people that they just have to be filmmakers. They have to continue making movies, just like painters have to continue painting, just like um, musicians have to keep making music because that's who they are. That's 
what they do, and they can't really have a happy existence on this planet unless they do. Those are the choices they've made and who they've become. It's kind of the Vincent Van Gogh thing, you know. Was, and I, I just heard this the other night, was Vincent Van Gogh a miserable, unhappy, depressed person? Well, I think the the thought, you know, the general consensus is that, oh, poor Vincent Van Gogh, he was completely, you know, he was, you know, committed to insane asylums, he was depressed, etc. But he was an incredible painter, and he probably got a lot of happiness out of painting. When he was painting, he was probably in pure joy. Uh, the fact that he couldn't feed himself or live or pay his rent or sell his paintings or get recognized was what was miserable. But he loved what he did, I'm sure. So, you know, for lack of a better comparison, you know, you make choices of who you want to be. And um, no matter who you are, it's a struggle, whether you're Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, or you're you or me. Uh, the path is hard for every single one. Well, finally, do you like that streaming services have come in to kind of take the role of some of the festivals during this time? Or do you think that it's just another medium taking away from that cinema experience? Well, I, I do think the big screen theatrical experience is the best way to see most movies. Um, I do think that there's a lot of movies that are written and made for the big screen. I don't think the theatrical experience is going to go away. I think it's going to become, it's, it's going to find its place. I, I'm grateful that the, the streamers are so successful and have so much money to make stuff. Um, you know, it's great to always have some type of entity that in the United States creates a money machine for making stuff. Um, you know, the U.S. is probably the singular or one of the few countries that don't have a reliable government program to fund the arts. So we're at, as American filmmakers, we really are at the mercy of the market forces. So the fact that these companies are willing to take chances on what many might call risky films um, is a blessing. I don't think a traditional studio like Paramount is going to give filmmaker like Noah Baumbach $10 million to make a movie or, or whatever his budgets are. I just don't think that that is the new reality. The new reality is Netflix will um, because they have the pockets and they need you know, Netflix Netflix has found a, a certain formula that they, they make a volume of stuff and they already know that 70% of it might be crap. But of the other 30%, maybe 2% might hit award season. And all those films that hit award season for Netflix is what drives the brand. So they've figured out that, that formula and they're willing to take those gambles. The studios, the old studios, will not take that gamble anymore. 
So I, I think that's kind of what's happening right now. So it, it's a good thing. It's finding the, you know, as American filmmakers, we need to find a way to embrace what's working and find a way to get, to find that balance between what story it is you want to tell, how you want to tell it, and how to get it financed. And uh, that's kind of the artist, the art meets business uh, path in battle. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to sit down and chat with me. Uh, we all look forward to your feature and upcoming documentary in whenever they are completed. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, thank you for a great talk. Thank you for listening. Make sure to keep up with all upcoming projects of Paul's over on his website, paulrockman.com, which a link can be found in the notes of this podcast, and pick up American Hardcore wherever you get your media. This concludes our broadcast day.